we're going to get started. Um, for those of you who are asking, today we are beginning in Amos. So if you want to get started and you want to get your Bible open, uh, it's going to be a while until we get to the text itself, but that's where we're starting today is Amos chapter 1, uh, today starting a study as a minor prophet. So as we begin, uh, let me open in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you are the living God, and the one who speaks and it happens, the one who declares what is uh, from the beginning to the end before any event takes place. You are the God who uh, is living and active in the world and able to speak to us and tell us what you desire for us and what you demand of us. Oh Lord, we pray that by your word and by your spirit today, you would speak to us. We pray that you would uh, not only open your word to us, but open our hearts to you. Uh, and lay us bare before you. Uh, you are the great lion who roars, uh, and the mountains uh, wither, and uh, the fields quake. And so we pray that we would hear uh, the roaring of the lion of Judah today, uh, and that we would see something of Christ, and that you would uh, cause us not only to be uh, full of fear and awe before him, uh, but that you would, uh, you would show us the way that he roars uh, in protection over your people the way that he is the one who has taken all of the covenant curses and all the blessings uh, come to us from him. And so we pray that you would help us to see more of Christ, especially as we walk through some of the minor prophets in these coming weeks. We pray that you would give us wisdom, discernment, to understand these things. Pray that you would give us a sensitivity to where you're leading, uh, that we would not allow our ideas to cloud out yours, uh, but that we would be pliable before you, uh, that you would speak by your word and spirit uh, and teach us of the mind of God. We pray that you would do this so that you would be glorified among your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, so today we are beginning a study of uh, some of the minor prophets. And uh, the impetus for this study um, actually came last fall. I was telling uh, Tim Curran uh, that I was, I was reading through uh, Robert Murray McShane's um, Bible reading plan last year, and late in the fall, if you've ever used that, uh, you know the way that uh, the machine plan has you reading in four different places all at the same time, and, and those four different starting points all progress, and it's interesting to see the way uh, the passages line up, <clears throat> and so in the fall, um, you, you get to the point where you begin to read the minor prophets, and you're also reading the minor prophets at the same time that you're reading Kings and Chronicles, and there's this really neat alignment of watching the historical events unfold while also seeing the prophets speaking into these things and, and uh, giving a, um, a word from the Lord into some of these happenings. And so I was inspired. I knew that, uh, that I'd be teaching this fall and was thinking about what we could do, and I had this, uh, this uh, characteristically grandiose idea. Uh, we're going to have a, a survey of each of the minor prophets. We're going to look at the historical context, we're going to put them together, we're going to see the way that they, they unfold, and it's going to be this grand thing, and you're all going to come away, and you're going to say, wow, that pastor, he's so smart, or something like that, um, and uh, I decided that was way too much. <laughs> so uh, we're going to take a little bit of a different tack, um, and uh, so what we're going to do um, is we're going to look at just a few of the minor prophets. My goal really is that we'll end up looking at two of them over the coming weeks. Rather than taking tiny slices of, uh, of all of them, uh, we're going to look at, Lord willing, all of two of them. And those two that we'll look at will be uh, Amos and Malachi. And, and those two come at the beginning of the time of the writing prophets and at the end of the time of the writing prophets. And so we'll get to see and consider two really different distinct time periods and, and historical settings uh, for these different prophets, and we'll get to compare uh, some of what, uh, what one prophet was saying and another prophet was saying. But that's the goal. Um, Amos is nine chapters, um, and, uh, and Malachi is four, and so we should have just enough time to get through them. I, I have a little bit of an introduction for you today. I've given you a, a handout on prophetical literature, and so <clears throat> I, I'm not at all convinced that we will get very far at all in our text of, of Amos today. We are going to look at it, we're going to read it, um, but if we, we just lay the groundwork for our study going forward, I think that would be a good thing. Uh, before anybody asks, um, 
let me answer the question that, that we have in our minds when we come to the, the minor prophets. I had, a, uh, I had a professor in my undergrad who made terrible Bible jokes, um, and he would always, uh, he had this big, deep voice, and he would say, far be it from me to call the minor prophets minor. <laughs> and he would chuckle at himself. Um, and so the question, why are the minor prophets minor? Uh, well, well, they're not minor because they're less important. Um, they're, they're minor because they're just shorter. It's just a matter of length. In fact, in, in the Jewish division of the text, they generally think of the prophets in terms of latter prophets and earlier prophets. The earlier prophets actually include uh, some of the historical narratives, Joshua, uh, Samuel, Kings, some of those things. They consider those the, some of the earlier prophets. And then the latter prophets are what we think of as prophets, the, the writing prophets, everything from Isaiah uh, Jonah, Daniel, all the ones that we think of when we think of that section that comes after uh, the poetry, after the, uh, the Proverbs and after the Psalms and all of that, and then there's this big chunk that we think of as prophets, they would consider that the latter prophets. Um, and typically, the way that it worked in a synagogue, if a synagogue was able to have scrolls of all of the biblical books, uh, if you take all of the 12 minor prophets uh, and you take them together, they fit in one scroll about the same size as the other prophets. And so generally, sometimes you'll hear of the minor prophets referred to as the book of the 12. Not because they all prophesied at the same time, uh, not because they were somehow subordinate to the others, but just for space. Uh, it fit on one scroll, and it was the book of the 12, it was the book of Isaiah, it was the book of, of several others. So before anybody asks, that's, that's what's going on with the minor prophets. And, uh, and this uh, semester, we're going to move into a study of, of them. Now, I, I've given you this handout. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here um, because, quite honestly, um, we're pretty familiar with the prophets here at Redeemer. We love uh, the prophets, and if you've been with us for a while, you have studied uh, lots of the prophets with us. Um, you may remember, if you've been here for a long time, um, that Steve Barry spent like two and a half years or something like that walking through Isaiah chapter by chapter, this this huge study that he did of Isaiah, and even uh, this past semester, he taught through Daniel. So we're familiar with Daniel and Isaiah. I, I've preached through Micah and Jonah. We have studied uh, some of the other ones. Um, uh, Zephaniah, uh, Steve Barry taught through Zephaniah. Uh, years ago, Jerry Maguire taught through Hosea. And so we're familiar with the prophets. I don't want to waste too much of our time thinking about this um, and, and just getting oriented to the prophets. But the reality is that for a lot of Christians, and maybe for you, the prophets are, are, are kind of hard to access. Not inaccessible, but hard to, to get at because they're really just different. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you can pick up a gospel. You can pick up even some of the, the Old Testament historical narratives. Um, and, and you get a basic sense for the flow of what's happening. It, it's rather straightforward and you can walk through it. But for, for various reasons, um, the, the prophets are not as straightforward. They require a little bit more work um, to, to figure out what, what is the, the gap between where they were writing and where we're reading. But it's really worth it. Uh, if you've spent time studying the prophets, uh, you know just the, the richness of it. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I took uh, a prophetical books class at seminary, and it ended up uh, being just a class on Isaiah, <laughs> which was great. We spent a whole semester just looking at Isaiah, and it was wonderful, and there's so much depth and so much richness in Isaiah, but the same is true of the other prophets, but sometimes it's, it's just hard to get at them. So I want to talk about some of the, the difficulties that we have in reading and understanding the prophets before we get into it, and the first difficulty that we have is really just understanding what the prophets were all about. You know, if you ask uh, a lot of people, well, well what are prophets? A sort, of, um, a sort of popular idea of, of what prophecy is all about uh, is that it's, it's just predictions. It's just telling what's going to happen in the future, almost like a, a fortune teller, almost sort of a, a soothsayer. You think of Nostradamus and all these, uh, these uh, pagan secular ideals of what prophecy is. And, and there is uh, quite a bit of, of predictive uh, prophecy in the Bible. They, they are telling what's going to happen but they're telling what's going to happen within a particular context. Uh, and that particular context is the context of the covenant. And so it's really quite impossible to understand what a prophet is doing in Israel without understanding what a covenant is doing in Israel. Some people have called um, the prophets 
uh, covenant enforcers. You can see that on your, your handout there. They're, they're God's spokesperson. They speak. The, the, the language that's used to speak of them sometimes in the Old Testament, uh, they were called a seer. Uh, you, you hear that um, in the context of Samuel. There, there's that, um, uh, there's that uh, sort of insertion there where they're going up to see Samuel, and they're telling you now from a, a later point in prophecy, or in, in Israel's history, uh, they're telling you, well, what we now call prophets, they used to call seers, because they, they had sort of a, a seeing vision into what God was doing, and they were able to, to see as the, the Spirit moved them, uh, able to see what God required and where the people were, were lacking and what sort of judgment was about to come. So we need to understand um, what, a, what a covenant is. I love the children's catechism uh, answer to what a covenant is. Uh, it says that a, a covenant is a relationship that God establishes and guarantees by his word. It's, it's this sort of top-down sort of relationship. Uh, the, uh, the Westminster Confession calls it a voluntary condescension on God's part, uh, that he, he stoops low to speak with us and to bind himself to us and to meet us where we are, but it's, it's always this sort of king and vassal relationship, that the Lord is able to make demands and we are the ones who are called to meet them, but he, he gives himself to us in the covenant, and he makes promises of what he will accomplish, and he calls us to what we are supposed to do. And, and so a covenant comes with, with blessings, and it comes with curses. That's the, uh, the table that you have on the front of your handout here. Uh, and I didn't come up with this, although uh, the, this table of woes is a really, really impressive uh, alliterative uh, list here. I wish I had come up with that, but that's from Fee and Stewart. Uh, and there's no page number, but trust me, it's in there. But it, it's in this little book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Um, and so if you were to go back and read Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 4, or especially Deuteronomy chapter 8 through chapter, chapter 28 through chapter 32, you will see these lists where the Lord says, you're coming into the land, and here's what I require, and when you live according to my covenant, these will be your blessings. They summarize life and health and prosperity and agricultural abundance and respect of the nations around them and safety from the nations and all of these wonderful blessings that they're going to receive, but it also comes with a warning, and the Lord tells the nation of Israel, if you don't live according to my covenant, here's what you can expect in all of these Ds. Death, disease, drought, dark, uh, danger, destruction, defeat, deportation, destitution, disgrace, all of these things. And, and it is an, just an astounding list. If you read through that section, especially in Deuteronomy, uh, it, it, is, it is enough to make your knees quake, what the Lord is saying to his people, um, that, uh, that there are blessings, but there are curses. And these curses are very specific. And so when you read uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, one of the best things that you can do is to be really well-versed in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus, and in Deuteronomy especially. These are some of the books that we read in the Old Testament, and we say, oh, it's just all of these laws and all of these regulations and all of these sacrifices and things that we don't have to do anymore, and so we, we just sort of glance over them. But if you want to understand the prophets, you need to understand the Pentateuch. You need to understand what God is requiring of his people, and what he is saying will happen if they don't live in accordance with that. Now, already, I think um, we're getting to some of the significance for us as New Testament believers. When we think just in terms of, of the covenant of God and his covenants, his administrations of, of his covenants, um, they come to us in terms of curses and blessings. And then you think about some of the language of the New Testament, about our great prophet, uh, Jesus Christ, and, and it speaks to us in terms of being drawn near to him, and through him we receive all of God's blessings, and he receives all the curses for our disobedience. You hear me quoted all the time, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sakes God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, well, why would he become sin? Well, because we deserve the curses of the covenant. And when you read these Old Testament prophets, they are listing, here are the curses that are coming upon you, and God is going to send you away from the land. He's going to send you into exile. He's going to bring the sword against you. You're going to be disgraced among the people and all of these things that he said were going to happen. And then you see Christ in the New Testament, and he's cut off, and he's killed, and he's disgraced 
and he's laid in the grave. Why? Well, because, because we deserved that. And we deserved all those covenant curses, but Christ has taken them for us. The same thing that we find in Isaiah, uh, one of the other Old Testament prophets. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So if you want to understand what Christ has done for you, you want to understand the prophets. Because they are listing out what are the curses uh, that God has promised for disobedience and what are the things that are laid upon Christ, our substitutionary sacrifice uh, in his, his uh, atonement for us. So, but the job of the prophet was, was to draw these things out, uh, to speak to, a, to the nation of God and sometimes uh, to other nations. In fact, there are three, uh, and really the reason I wanted to give you this handout was for this, uh, this table. This also is not mine. Uh, you can find it online. Um, but this table, there are actually three of God's prophets who are sent to foreign nations, which is amazing when you think about it, uh, that, that the God of Israel, and we'll see this today as we get into Amos, the God of Israel is not concerned only with Israel. He sends his prophets, uh, he sends Jonah, where? To Nineveh. Uh, he sends Nahum to Nineveh. Uh, and he sends Obadiah, where? Edom, Edom. Uh, he sends him to Edom. Uh, and so, uh, we'll, in fact, we'll look at that today. There's, there's a nice little connection between Obadiah, which is only one little chapter, uh, Obadiah and Amos chapter 1, where the Lord is speaking against the sins of Edom. And even though they are, uh, they're divided by several hundred years, uh, the Lord has these prophets that he sends, and to his people he speaks to them specifically in terms of the covenant. We'll see that in Amos chapter 1 and 2. Uh, but to the nations, he also speaks to them, uh, but maybe not in the same terms and not in, in terms of the covenant. Now, there, there, uh, there are all sorts of predictive prophecies uh, in the prophets, and those are important, generally so that the prophet could be trusted. That was what the Lord said even through Moses. Uh, he said, uh, if a prophet arises and he speaks something in your ears uh, and it doesn't occur, well, you don't have to worry about that prophet. <laughs> he's a charlatan. Uh, he, he's just trying to, to force you to do something that you ought not to do. And the Lord is, he says, I'm testing you through these false prophets. Um, but, but actually speaking and, and bringing things about, that was an important part of the prophetic office. Uh, it was also revealing uh, the Lord who controls time and history. Well, well who then uh, got to be a prophet? If you've got your Bible open to Amos, uh, turn to Amos chapter 7. Here we're beginning to see some of uh, what we need for the background of this particular book. Um, can I get somebody to read for me? Amos chapter 7, verses 10 um, through 15. Amos 7, 10 through 15. Tim, go for it. I love this section of Amos. Uh, so who gets to be a prophet? Was it a herdsman, apparently, a, a gatherer of sycamore fruit? Um, yeah, Stitch. 
Sure. Yep. Sure. Sure. And you see, especially um, in some of the historical narratives you see with Saul, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Because there, there was this class of, of sort of professional prophets that the Lord had gathered. Um, and you see following Elijah and Elisha, all the prophets who are with them, and when Elijah is taken and Elisha is left, all the, all the sons of the prophets, they're sometimes called, say, well, let's go and find him. I mean, no, 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 no. And they press so hard that, all right, go ahead. You're not going to find him, but, but try anyway. So there was this, uh, this class almost of, of professional prophets, we could call them. And, uh, and Amos is saying, well, I, I wasn't one of those. The Lord is able to use those, but not just those. Uh, very often the Lord will raise up people from the priestly class, from the Levites. Uh, in fact, Isaiah. Isaiah was a priest. He was in the temple uh, in, uh, during the reign of, of Uzziah. Well, who gets to go into the temple? The priest. Uh, and Isaiah was a priest, and, and he was called to be a prophet, but not all of them. Uh, and so the, the big deal with being a prophet is not necessarily... Um, the, the things that, that man looks at, not human qualifications, but being a prophet comes down to who God calls, who God calls and who God equips. Uh, and we see as we'll go through Amos, he is steeped in the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament, but he's not a, we wouldn't call him a man of, of learning, a man of letters. He hasn't been taught under Gamaliel. He hasn't been raised to be this rabbi, but the Lord calls this man who's a, a shepherd and a gatherer of fruit, and he equips him. And so it is the Lord's sovereign choosing. Sometimes in the New Testament, there, uh, there were women who were called to be prophetesses uh, in a time when many women weren't even taught to read. And yet the Lord calls them, and the Lord used them. Uh, and so who gets to be a prophet? Well, it is just whoever the Lord calls. Maybe it's this, this class of people. Maybe it's somebody from the, uh, from the priest, but it's also who the Lord calls. Good. Uh, now, um, what are some of the obstacles that we face in studying the prophets? And I, I've got just a short list for you here, and this is helpful maybe to think about what about when you go to study the prophets on your own? Uh, what can you do and what do you need to be able to, uh, to understand them? Well, there, there are several. Um, one is history. You need to understand the historical layout of Israel. Um, today, we are going to look at Amos, who was one of the very early prophets, uh, and he speaks and prophesies to a completely different setting than, say, uh, Malachi at the end, or even Joel, or even Jeremiah. The, the idea of what's happening on the geopolitical scene, not just in Israel, but elsewhere around Israel, is hugely important for understanding the prophets and what they're saying and what's going on. Uh, you know, you, you've got Hosea uh, speaking to Israel, the northern kingdom. Well, Hosea's um, his initial uh, prophecy doesn't have the same effect if you were to drop that, you know, 300 years later, because... Quite frankly, Israel is no more. <laughs> uh, and, it's, and it's helpful, it's useful, it, it's still God's inspired word, it's still a word that he speaks to all of us for all times, but they spoke into a particular context that, that has changed, and so understanding what's happening in the, the political scene, just historically, is hugely important. Um, so if, if ever you're reading, and the prophets mention the kings that were in place, flip back to kings and chronicles, and just find them, and just read, well, what's happening? What... What is the scene in Israel and Judah at the time? Hugely important and helpful for understanding the prophets. Uh, geography. I meant to bring it. Um, if you want to understand the prophets, study them with a map open. Uh, I, have, I have this big book of, of biblical maps, and it's really helpful uh, because very often when the prophets are uh, talking about other, uh, other nations that you might know, it will refer to them in terms of a very important city that you may not know. Um, and so even, even today, in Amos uh, chapter 1, there will be a prophecy against Gaza. Well, where is Gaza? What nation is that a part of? Philistia, yeah. 
one of the five capital cities of the Philistines. Uh, and, uh, and so you need to know there's a, there's a whole lot of background when the Lord is speaking prophecy against the Philistines immediately when you realize these are Philistines, oh, okay, I've got a, I've got a context for a lot more of what's going on, but you know, just have a map open. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> it's as simple as that. Have a map open and look at what the Lord is saying and, and get the lay of the land. Um, this idea of poetry uh, can be an obstacle to a lot of people. Again, the, the, some of the narratives, some of the epistles, so straightforward, and, uh, and there's sometimes some interpretive stuff. There are some parables. Um, but by far, the, the prophets are just full of, uh, of imagery that has to be parsed out and understood. Um, the Lord speaks in each of the oracles that we'll read today. I'm going to send uh, a fire. Um, uh, I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza. It will devour her strongholds. And you see it in different contexts, and, and it seems pretty clear he's not talking necessarily about a, a literal fire. He could be talking about warfare. It could be talking about famine. Now, sometimes warfare uh, involves fire, and so, <laughs> so those come together. But there, it, there's an imagery aspect that we need to get over if we're, we're to understand it. Uh, and, and this idea of the original intent. Also the idea of collected oracles versus, versus a linear progression. Um, that the, the prophets sometimes give you chunks, one on top of one another, but they're not necessarily uh, from A to Z. Um, and so you need, to, you need to try and work and figure out how they, how they fit together because that might not have been the, the point uh, of the original intent, but it, it just helps us to, to understand these things. The, the other important thing that we need to understand, uh, and this comes from a, a scholar named William Van Gemeren, uh, he compares the prophets as... God's system of revelation, that is, God speaks to man, he reveals himself, and he compares that to the pagan systems around Israel, which were systems of religion. So in revelation, God speaks to man, in religion, man tries to manipulate God. And this is something that you see the Lord railing against Israel, that they try to treat him as the other nations treat their gods. And in fact, they even try to treat God that way with the things that he's given them. You read Isaiah chapter 1. Who has required of you these trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. And they say, well, actually, you've required us uh, this, uh, this bringing of offerings. and all. You told us in your word. You gave us specific instructions for what to do. But they weren't receiving that as God's revelation. They were using that to try and manipulate God. You know, I, I've used the, the illustration before, I think, there, the, the system of religion and manipulating God works almost like you think of a vending machine, and they've got all those snacks, and you want a Twix, and the Twix is B6, and so you put your money in, you press B6, and if the Twix doesn't come out, you have a right to get angry, and you need to shake the machine. Well, religion treats God like that. I did the thing. I, I put in the money. I press B6. Where's my Twix? And, and revelation, prophecy says, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you, you don't get the demand from God. And you certainly don't get to use the ordinances that the Lord has given you as a sort of a crowbar to say, now God has to do what I want. Now God has to give us abundant crops because I've done the outward thing. And what happens when you approach God with, with religion is what the prophets show us is that you end up having people that are circumcised in their flesh but not in their heart. So you keep the outward ordinances of the law, but your heart is far from the Lord. You see that all through the prophets, and they rail against Israel because they're treating God as though religion could win the day, and they could simply manipulate him uh, and get him to do what they want. Now, uh, that's sort of a, a general introduction to, um, uh, to prophecy in general. Maybe this will be helpful for you as, as you think about it, but just sort of a grid to think about, well, well, where do we situate some of these things? Some of these dates and some of this, um, scholars disagree, but I think this is a, this is a pretty good conservative estimate, uh, you know, putting Isaiah uh, before the Babylonian captivity, that's, that's generally pretty conservative uh, because secular uh, commentators, oh, no, 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 uh, Isaiah's prophecy is so explicit that it couldn't possibly have been written before. No, no, actually it was. <laughs> it actually predicted and the Lord actually told what was going to happen. So this is, this is a good little um, uh, resource for you to have and especially to remember these important dates at the top. Uh, 722, 586, and 538, uh, Assyria, Assyria exiling Israel, and then uh, the other exiles and, uh, and the return. 
Now, those are the big signposts for understanding the prophets uh, and understanding where is, where is Jeremiah writing in relation to telling Israel there, actually there's going to be 70 years and then seeing Daniel later reading Jeremiah and saying the 70 years are almost up uh, and, and getting excited about that and he's so excited he breaks out in repentance. <laughs> you know, this is the effect of, of the prophets when we put them in their, their true historical context it shows us God is actually at work. That's what Daniel saw when he read the prophets. The 70 years is almost up. We, we haven't even repented of these things yet. That was the whole point of the exile. And we're, you know, we're just fat and dumb and happy in, in Babylon. And we haven't done what God has called us to do. He wants us to repent. And so it, it gets us thinking about the Lord who works uh, in history. Now I want to read uh, Amos together. We're going to read uh, chapters 1 and 2. Um, and we don't need much of an introduction to Amos because most of what we can get out of uh, Amos and most of what we need to know is right there in the text. And we'll, we'll talk about it uh, as we go through. But just a, a sort of what is Amos about uh, and, and why is it important for us to read? Um, well, his, his prominence among the prophets, this, he's, he's quite likely the first of the writing prophets that we have. Um, Jonah might have been before him, um, but Jonah is more of a, of a narrative of his life and times and, and what he did. And, and when he shows up in Nineveh, the only recording we have of his prophecy is, yet 40 days and you'll be overthrown, which was either the shortest sermon in the history of the world or just a summary. And it was probably just a summary. So we don't have recorded what, what Jonah actually spoke, but we do have recorded uh, the sermons that, that Amos gave. And Amos would have been a contemporary, a little bit, uh, a little prior contemporary of Hosea. So if you have uh, an understanding of what's going on in Hosea, some of these things uh, fit together. So there's the prominence among the prophets, but also his relevance. Uh, Amos railed against the ills of an affluent, corrupt society. It was a time in Israel where the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer, uh, and there was a, uh, a divide between those two was widening. And all of the really religious people were patting themselves on the back and saying, clearly God loves us and we're doing the right thing because we're so prosperous. That was what they were telling themselves. How could we possibly be on the wrong track because we've got resources in abundance. Our, uh, our kingdom is expanding. This is what God has promised. So we are doing what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, and Amos shows up and he says, uh, not quite. <laughs> You've forgotten an awful lot of this stuff. Uh, and, and you need to be reminded because judgment is coming. Chris?
Yeah, and I think you're, you're drawing out an important point there, Chris, that what they were doing was looking and evaluating their, um, their faithfulness to God based on the gifts they had received and not what God had said he required. So they're looking at the external circumstances and saying, well, we don't need to evaluate our practices because clearly God is blessing us. Um, but I think what we'll see in Amos, even as he turns attention to Israel, um, and what we need to be aware of is that the things that we think are blessings in this life are not always blessings, and they're sometimes the curses that we're receiving. Uh, prosperity is not always a blessing, um, and it can be one of, uh, one of the um, tendrils of sin that are wrapping around our hearts and causing us to have hearts that are hardened to what God actually says. Um, now, yeah, we need to deal with this, this blessings and woes that the Lord says he'll send, um, but we can't detach that from God's requirements. We can't, we can't remove that from what God has explicitly told us, this is what I require of you. We sometimes, uh, you'll hear somebody um, who says, um, you know, they're, they've decided to leave their spouse. They're having an affair. And they tell you, well, this has to be what God wants for my life because I'm having the best quiet times I've ever had. I feel spiritually fulfilled. And you're saying, you fools. God has said uh, that you shouldn't do this. It's explicit in his word. And so don't just go by your outward circumstances and you feel like you're on a spiritual uh, high. Go to God's word and ask, what has he required of you? Uh, what does righteousness look like in this situation? And that is the standard. Dave? Yeah, what, what you see from the prophets is a huge concern about what today would be called social justice. Yep. Um, but it is grounded in God's requirements and not um, just man's idea for what fairness looks like. Um, and, and it is, you know, I mean, if we want to reclaim that, um, I mean, that phrase is only a couple years old anyway, but we could... The prophets were, in a sense, the original social justice warriors because they were God's men, God's warriors sent to his people who were trampling all over the poor uh, and the downtrodden. And, uh, and the Lord is sending his people, his prophets, to say, you have forgotten the poor among you and you need to remember them, you need to care for them. So this is a huge, huge uh, thing in the prophets. Okay, um, James Montgomery Boyce says that Isaiah is about the idolatry of things and the oppression that may be entailed in accumulating them. That's pretty good. The idolatry of things and the, impress, the oppression that may be entailed in accumulating them. Uh, there's a basic layout uh, to Amos. It comes in three parts. Uh, the first two chapters where he announces God's lawsuit against the nations and against Israel and Judah. And then the second section in chapters uh, 3 through 6 are a series of oracles naming the sins of Israel, uh, and that portion is highlighted by thus says the Lord. So those are oracles, those are auditory things, the Lord is speaking. But then the last section, verse uh, chapters 7 through 9, are visions. The Lord showed me, and, and there is a vision, and it's more visionary and, and, uh, and um, visual rather than auditory, what the Lord is saying. Uh, and so that, that's a way that we can, we can look at it, and today we're going to read um, uh, chapters 1 and 2. We are not <laughs> going to cover this. We'll come back to it next time. That's okay. Um, uh, we've got some time. But, uh, but as you listen to this, think about um, what you understand about the context of this time, what you understand about the geography of this time, and the way that it is all structured together to show you not just what is the prophet saying, but what does this reveal about God? God reveals himself and what he cares about through the prophets that he sends that they are sent to rail against some sins 
and, and to reveal not just what's going wrong, but here's the things that God actually cares about, and here's his character. Uh, so here now, God's word as we read it. Amos uh, chapters 1 and 2. Long reading. <coughs> the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron, so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people and delivered them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds. With shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord." Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kirioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the stronghold of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go unto the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his root beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, 
declares the Lord. So, uh, we're out of time. Um, but what can we find uh, in the setting that we get? Look at, especially at that first verse. Amos gives us some of the details to pinpoint uh, the setting and, and the history of this prophecy. So what do you know about the background of this time? What can we glean from this setting that helps us to understand and approach this prophecy? What's going on at this time? Who are the kings? Thank you. <laughs> what do we know about Uzziah and Jeroboam? So let's start there. Uh, there are two kingdoms, uh, Israel and Judah, and not one. Uh, he is not being sent to a united kingdom, but now to the second Jeroboam after the first Jeroboam broke away, and that was because uh, of the sins of, of David's family, of Solomon. Uh, and so the kingdom was given to Jeroboam, and you remember that division between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, um, and, uh, and that division not just between the lands, but also between uh, the, the religious practices. What do you know about Jeroboam I and what he did to keep the people uh, in the north? Yeah. Yeah. The Lord has said, you must worship me in Jerusalem, but if the people up here in the ten tribes of the north keep going down to Jerusalem, pretty soon we're not going to have a kingdom up here. I know what I'll do. Uh, Bethel and Gilgal and Dan, I'll set up a couple cats. And we'll have our own religious center right there. Uh, Bethel is right at the border, right above the border between southern and northern uh, kingdoms. And it's important that later um, uh, in chapter 7, we already read that uh, Amos goes to prophesy into the northern kingdom. He only gets as far as Bethel, <laughs> right over the border. Uh, and Azariah, the, the priest, says, Dom, no, 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 you should just go home. That's the other thing that we notice. So there are, there are divided kingdoms, and it says that Amos is from Tekoa. Anybody want to guess where Tekoa is? About 10 miles south of Jerusalem, yeah. So you don't need a map if you've got Brian Head in, uh, in your family, apparently. I, I mean, I had to look that up. I'm impressed. Uh, but it's south of... <laughs> good, good. Study Bibles are helpful. It's south of Jerusalem. Uh, and so imagine you've got these two kingdoms that are divided through civil war, and this is now eh, about 150 years after the division. Let's, let's play a thought experiment uh, and say that the civil war ended differently than it did, and the northern and southern states of the United States are actually still divided. And about 150 years later, somebody from Richmond, Virginia, comes to Boston and says, God is really angry with... Tehran, and you say, yeah, he's really angry with Tehran, and God's really angry with North Korea, and you say, yeah, God's really angry with North Korea, and it gets closer, and he says, God's angry with Mexico. All right, God's angry with Mexico and Canada. Okay? Uh, and by the way, God's angry at the South. You say, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but I bet he is, and he says, God's really angry at you folks up here. Whoa, that doesn't go over very well, and this is what Amos is doing. He's, he's a man from the South. Uh, and the Lord calls him to go north and to go and speak to these people of, of a divided kingdom who are saying, you know, we're, we're really happy up here uh, without our brothers to the south. Brian. Oh, absolutely. Yep, yep. Yeah, so uh, what happened, um, good point. And you can read that in Second Kings 14. We won't read it today, but Jeroboam II was also known as Jeroboam the Great for just that reason. Second uh, Kings tells us that he was a wicked man. He, was, he wasn't great because uh, he was this wonderful religious person. He was great because he had this economic expansion, and part of it was because about 10 years before Jeroboam became the king, uh, the king of Syria was attacked by the king of Assyria. So the northern border of Israel butted up against Syria, and what you hear when, it, when it's talking about ripping open women in Gilead, that was the region, that was the borderland, really. Um, and Syria and some of the other nations would come in and try to expand, and there were border skirmishes all the time. 
Well, about 10 years before Jeroboam II became king, the king of Assyria came down and took away the king of Syria, and so the opposition was gone. The Lord opened the door, and the northern kingdom expanded to, the, to fill the land like they had never done before. And not because uh, there was some wonderful thing happening in the temples, uh, but because, the, and, and Second Kings actually tells us, because the Lord was being gracious, because the, the people were being wiped out, and he, he cared for his people, and so he removed their oppression and allowed them to expand. And this is opening the door for us seeing uh, next week, when we come to it, all of this prosperity. I mean, the, he, I, I love it. In, in uh, chapter, um, <laughs> take a look at chapter 4. The first verse. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Oh, my. Uh, this, is, this is what Amos is calling the women uh, of the northern kingdom because they're just sort of grazing and happy and just sort of mindless. Uh, because, what's that? Sleek. Yeah, <laughs> let's put it that way. You cows of Bashan. And it's because the kingdom is at ease. What a wonderful thing that the kingdom is at ease because Jeroboam the Great is in power, um, but that actually leads to an awful lot of the oppression that we're going to see. Now, we're going we're gonna to stop there. We're going to come back uh, and look at this again next week. Thank you for bearing with me as we just think about prophecy. Next week, we're really going to dig into some of these different things, but keep this in mind uh, that, that Amos is this prophet railing against what Voice uh, calls the idolatry of things, uh, and we're going to see that, and we're going to see the Lord railing from Jerusalem in the south, that's important, uh, against all the nations, but also against the northern kingdom, and it will not be well received. Uh, so let's uh, end in prayer today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you uh, for the way that you speak to us. We pray that you would indeed lead us by your prophets, that you would indeed lead us by your word, that we would see something of Christ, uh, that we would uh, rejoice in him, we would know more of him, and we would trust in you. Oh, Lord, help us uh, to look to you and to be saved and, and to follow in the way that you call us to walk, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.